0: Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Christopher Rufo. Chris is a documentary filmmaker who's based in Seattle. He's the director of the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth and Poverty, and he's a City Journal a contributing editor. You can follow him on Twitter at RealChrisRuffo. As I imagine many of our listeners have heard about by now, activists in Seattle protesting the police following the killing of George Floyd in police custody in Minneapolis, have occupied a six-block area in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle. After the city's police made the decision to abandon the local precinct building and evacuate the area, activists took over the barricades and declared it the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ for short, though in recent days it seems it's perhaps been renamed the Capitol Hill Organized Protest, or CHOP, but we'll we'll get back to that a little later. Chris has written extensively for City Journal about politics and radical activism, especially in his hometown of Seattle. His two most recent pieces for us on the website are about the situation in Chaz, and it's the reason we asked him to come on the show today to talk about it. Chris, thanks a lot for joining us.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: First of all, Chris, I was hoping you could sort of give us a timeline of the events that led up to the declaration of CHAZ uh, and, you know, really explain what led the Seattle police to abandon the East Precinct and the Seattle city government to allow what is actually a significant chunk of the city to be taken over in this fashion.
1: Yeah, well, all of this really originated with the George Floyd protests. And over the course of time, uh, after some kind of rioting and looting in the central core of downtown Seattle, the protests really took focus around the East Precinct building in Capitol Hill. And it's important to keep in mind that Capitol Hill is the most progressive uh, neighborhood in Seattle. It elected a, a city council member from the Socialist Alternative Political Party, uh, and it's been really a hub of activism and the LGBTQ community uh, for a long time. But what really set activists off was that they were trying to create a confrontation with police around the East Precinct building, uh, which is in the heart of this neighborhood. And over the course of about one week, they were battling at the barricades every night. And uh, what I think protesters were attempting to do strategically was to bait the police officers who were defending the East Precinct building into a reaction. And and they got it. They had tear gas. They had some projectiles. Uh, and on the other side, the police uh, were pelted with rocks and bottles and improvised explosive devices. Uh, according to officers, they had about 45 officers uh, out on uh, leave because of injuries at this location and others. So it was a kind of pitched political or pitched uh, kind of street battle. But what changed was the political narrative. Protesters were able to uh, really take videos of the kind of aggressive uh, anti-riot techniques from police, able to kind of put that through social media and then the mainstream media. And the the political dynamic changed uh, very quickly. And the narrative of police brutality was established. And Although officers were kind of defending successfully from a tactical point of view, this East Precinct building, the mayor ended up making the political decision to abandon it because uh, she was rapidly losing support. Uh, City council members were calling for her resignation. Protesters were demanding that she step down. And she really had uh, such little political support and capital. uh, She made the decision to essentially abandon the East Precinct building, and hand it over to the protesters.
0: This is Mayor Jenny Durkin, and she's been in um, in office for how long? A couple of years now, right? Uh,
1: she's been in office for a couple of years, and and you know her position Jeez. is an interesting one. Um, by national standards, she would be considered a a kind of progressive uh, a person, a progressive political figure. Uh, you know, she was appointed as the U.S. Attorney under under the Obama administration. Um, She's been a long activist for uh, LGBTQ rights. But in the current political moment, all of those kind of political and identity categories that play as left wing on the national stage um, don't play in a city like Seattle, which has seen the political atmosphere shift very hard left in recent years. And Durkin is seen as a kind of moderate centrist, um, in the language of some activists, even fascist presence. So she's found herself uh, with no allies on the right because there are just so few people on the right in Seattle, uh, and then really kind of the, the, the target of immense hostility on the far left. So she's found herself in a, in a no-win position and, and made the decision to essentially uh, concede the territory about six blocks of territory in the densest, uh, densest one of the densest neighborhoods in Seattle, uh, you know, representing hundreds, if not thousands, of residents and small businesses.
0: In the piece you've just uh, published for us, which came out Monday, you describe what you might call the, you know, the developing political authority in Chas or CHOP. Um, as an experiment in social justice as governance, as you put it. Uh, so maybe elaborate on that a little bit and, and also say a bit about who uh, are the leaders of the autonomous zone and what different groups are, are in play
1: there. Well, you have to think of this kind of autonomous zone, this occupied territory, this protest in, in two levels. On one level, if you go there during the daytime, you'll find what resembles a street fair. So, you know, Mayor Jenny Durkin was uh, was kind of widely ridiculed on the right of center media for saying it's a, a kind of summer of love or a street fair. But in a sense, she's right. If you go there, you see vendors and musicians and artists, and it's a very relaxed atmosphere. Um, that's on the kind of top level. Um, but on the deeper level, what you're seeing is a struggle between Uh, three main uh, factions of activists and organizers uh, to establish a a political power, a political authority within the autonomous zone. Uh, First, you have the, um, you know, you might call them more mainstream left-wing activists uh, who have been around for a long time uh, that lead the Black Lives Matter protests that have been heavily involved in criminal justice reform, uh, predominantly um, African-American constituency, And they're really trying to take leadership of the autonomous zone as really an extension of the Black Lives Matter protests and their criminal justice activism, which involves defunding the police, uh, releasing protesters from jail without charges uh, and getting new political leadership to implement kind of more widespread uh, criminal justice reforms. Um, then you have the more radical elements. And this would be the kind of black-clad Antifa uh, activists and their affiliated uh, group, the John Brown Gun Club, which are uh, armed, almost paramilitary wing of Antifa um, that have provided the kind of uh, kind of perimeter security at times uh, with armed guards at the barricades. Um, and then you have the other faction you know, representing the kind of summer of love uh, component, where it's, you know, predominantly uh, upper income, younger, uh, white, uh, you might describe them as bourgeois uh, people uh, who have tried to, um, I think, in, in 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 the perspective of some of the more radical activists, have tried to commercialize the autonomous zone and turn it into a kind of Coachella uh, music festival environment. And but what I think the really interesting thing that you see is, is that you're, you're seeing this all play out and you're seeing this play out in live streams and uh, organized events and meetings. They're trying to figure out how to move from a, a protest, which is against something, um, into really the, the phase of conquest. They've now taken over this territory and they have the responsibility to govern it uh, in the absence of the police force and the traditional Kind of mechanisms of gov- of legitimate government. So, um, y- you've seen what I think of as all of those social justice slogans that we've covered in City Journal over the past few years. Uh, check your privilege. Uh, center the voices of indigenous and Black women. Um, uh, you know uh, uh, all of those kind of those social justice slogans. You're seeing them attempt to implement those into a form of governance through these kind of messy people's councils and assemblies and community meetings. Um, and it's it's really quite astonishing to see and I think is uh, deeply instructive to get a sense of uh, how would it look if the kind of extreme social justice wing of the Democratic Party uh, took over control of the kind of institutional apparatus? Uh, what kind of ideas and policies would they put in place? Uh, and we're seeing that unfold in real time, in writ small, in this six-block Uh, autonomous zone of Capitol Hill Seattle.
0: Well, one of the things you mentioned in the piece is that uh, some of the leaders are adopting policies of explicit segregation. Um, Perhaps uh, elaborate a little bit on that and uh, how that's being received.
1: This autonomous zone is, is, if you boil it down, is really being uh, organized along the lines of identity politics. And um, you see a kind of hierarchy that's been established in, in everything and in how they organize the space and how they, uh, you know, organize the list of speakers and how they run the people's assembly meetings. Um, and it really is a kind of, uh, kind of reverse a hierarchy of oppression. So uh, activists are very careful to uh, put uh, black, indigenous and transgender women in the positions of authority and leadership. Uh, and then you have kind of the reverse hierarchy going all the way down. And it, as it plays out, it it it's really kind of uh, shocking because you've seen, for example, the establishment uh, by a, a gentleman named uh, Marcus Henderson of a gardening space, a community gardening space, uh, specifically for Black and Indigenous people. Um, so it, it really kind of a a segregated even in the kind of gardens that they've established um, and you know putting up a sign and 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 you get the sense that they that they have bought so hard into the ideology of kind of safe spaces and uh specific spaces for uh you know members of of kind of the um uh, the disenfranchised that they're setting up almost a de facto uh in in some cases uh as de facto kind of segregated spaces, which I think to most uh, Americans uh, strikes them as kind of disconcerting and odd and and wrong. Um, and you've also seen instances and in, in in small cases around the edges of of kind of, of kind of crude and basic small scale reparations. Uh, one Native American activist who spoke uh, at one of the large gatherings uh, on the baseball field in the autonomous zone. Um, just very bluntly said you know it's time for every white person in the audience to find an African-American and give them ten dollars and we're going to be monitoring you we see you um, so y- you see the kind of um, really theoretical ideas of social justice and critical race theory uh, you see activists now trying to implement them in practical form and it's 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 crude it's almost, comical, it's really darkly ironic, Um, but I think it gives you a sense of what's to come in the kind of mainstream political platforms as the kind of uh, liberal left in the United States um, really doubles down on the kind of posturing and the politics of identity, of race, of uh, of this kind of uh, mainstreaming and platforming of of academic um, kind of postmodernism you're seeing it play out in in really kind of a a basic form Uh, but i think it's instructive and i think we have to pay attention even if it can be dismissed as ridiculous or or the work of only a very few people kind of fringe activists Uh, what we've seen is that those fringe ideas uh, can hit the mainstream very quickly um, and work their way up the chain so I think that we would be um, mistaken uh, to, to not observe this uh, with, with well, the kind it, it a kind of critical eye.
0: From it for sure. Um, but, you know, what's striking to me, Chris, is that all of this is dependent on the continuing provision of services, presumably from Seattle, electricity, water, where is the food coming from, um, all of that. Um, even if certain services like policing may be now uh, cut off in this autonomous zone, how how are the people feeding themselves there, for example?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, all of the services are really provided uh, externally. People are you know, there are food deliveries that are allowed to enter uh, into the autonomous zone through the barricades. Uh, so it's a pretty much a food import uh, from outside. Uh, Through the normal kind of commercial channels. Yeah. Um, You know, obviously the utilities are provided by the city still, and there's no sense that the city will cut those off. Um, But you've actually also had in recent days uh, city workers from the Department of Parks, from the Department of Neighborhoods, from the Department of uh, Transportation, um, built, you know, providing porta potties, providing trash services, providing all of those basic municipal functions. And basically
0: enabling the continuing party, in other words
1: exactly and i think it's really all under the rhetoric, the rubric of harm reduction they're saying well the people are occupying the zone they're going to keep occupying it uh, we should at least provide those basic sanitation and other services so but but i i think it's mistaken to to think that the end goal is autonomy or kind of separate nation that's really a political posture and what they're trying to do in reality is just what you're saying they're trying to extract more resources Uh, from the city government. And over the past few days, the mayor has signaled uh, her willingness to provide up to $100 million in funding uh, for what she's determining uh, as communities of color, uh, which is, I think, a euphemism for uh, local activist organizations. There's also um, some discussion internally, from what I'm hearing, about turning over the East Precinct building to uh, kind of local community organizations and activist organizations so the end game that I think is most likely is that the protesters will use this experience of the Chaz that's kind of humiliating the political powers uh, to extract massive concessions and win large-scale and continued funding for their movements so in the end what you're going to get is the taxpayer money is publicly subsidizing a private political activism uh, and it's only going to make this cycle um, devolve deeper and deeper into this kind well, of Well, you, you, you
0: very see kind of copycat movements in other cities trying to do the same thing, especially if it becomes a kind of shakedown apparatus in this way.
1: Um, what, yeah, what? and it really comes straight from the pages of the novelist Tom Wolfe. I mean, he was documenting these shakedown strategies uh, from many years ago uh, in, in books like Bonfire of the Vanities. And this is really just an, an update on this theme. It's the kind of uh, civil unrest and protest in in urban uh, in urban uh, metropolises, and um, using the kind of rhetoric of, of radical activism to to, to win concessions, um, it's something that we're seeing uh, that isn't new, uh, but has certainly a new face.
0: How um, you you pay close attention, I'm sure to the press in the Seattle area and the media. Uh, what's the coverage been like there, um, and has any of it been critical? I'm I'm struck by the reception to your two pieces uh, on the situation in Seattle for us, both of which have had tremendous amount of attention. So I feel like people, including in Seattle, might be a little starved for on-the-ground information about this.
1: They are. And I I think the Seattle press has largely framed this in the same kind of language as the mayor, which is, this is a peaceful protest. It's a summer of love. This is a, a kind of street fair environment. Um, which is certainly true. I mean, for the majority of the time, it absolutely is that—that's the dominant energy. Uh, but what they've refused to see is that um, there is this kind of subterranean element, especially at night uh, when you have armed uh, kind of mobs that are roving the streets and implementing street justice. This has been documented by a lot of journalists on the ground. There's videos that that show this very clearly. But you know the the press in Seattle. There's some good reporters out here. Uh, one of them, Brandi Cruz, a local TV reporter, um, was was exposing this kind of dark side of the Chaz, and she was uh, surrounded, harassed, mobbed, and physically thrown out of the area, and then relentlessly attacked by left wing uh, activists on social media uh, who've attempted to really discredit her. Uh, and, and and really ruin her reputation so you know frankly there's a lot of fear mainstream journalists and reporters um, don't want their reputation wrecked they don't want to face the blowback and i think they've really treated this story with kid gloves uh, and refused to cover uh, the full complex reality of the chaz
0: really remarkable what's behind this uh, um, battle over renaming the area or conflict over what what's the difference between chaz and chop
1: Well, the Capitol Hill autonomous zone, Chaz, implies that the protesters must take responsibility for governance and leadership um, of the area. If they want it to be an autonomous zone, they have to govern it uh, under the conditions of an autonomous zone. And as we saw through the various people's assemblies and meetings, um, they were really unable to arrive at a consensus, unable to arrive at a structure of legitimate leadership. And instead of trying to go down that road and bridge the divide between the various factions, they really said, you know, we don't want to take responsibility for this area. We don't want to have the burden of governance. We want this to be a Capitol Hill organized protest, which basically is a posture of eternal opposition uh, because they're much more comfortable opposing rather than governing. Um, and the 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 kind of onomatopoeia of chop uh, is is absolutely deliberate. You've seen a video of the protesters, um, you know, kind of celebrating the French revolutionary uh, spirit of chop and, you know, and then, and then making the motion with their hands Mm -hmm. of of the guillotine falling down on their opponents.
0: Wow. Well, speaking of, of that, um, how do you see this uh, situation ending in Seattle? Now, is the local government eventually going to intervene? Is the state going to intervene? Is the federal government going to intervene, or is this just going to be allowed to continue uh, indefinitely? I, I assume not, because at at a certain point, some people are going to start getting hurt.
1: I I think those are those are really the two plausible endpoints for the, the autonomous zone. Uh, one is that the mayor will make large concessions. She will, you know, she's already kind of negotiating behind the scenes with some of the Black Lives Matter protesters. And, you know, if they, you know, provide a massive amount of funding, they can appear together, they can de-escalate the situation. And eventually the protesters will kind of, uh, the, the stakes will be lowered enough that they get bored and leave. I think that's probably the most likely resolution. Um, certainly the council is, is considering legislation currently to cut the police budget by 50%. They think they have a majority. Uh, the mayor can provide a hundred million dollars in payout to the activists. Um, but there's also, if something goes horribly wrong, if there is a series of, of serious crimes, if there is a, a kind of mob uh, uh, kind of uh, that goes out of control, if there's structural fires, uh, this could also end very messily, uh, could end violently. It can end very dramatically. So we'll see what happens first. We'll Will the, the, the council and the mayor um, essentially pay out enough to send the protesters home or will the mob get uh, so far out of control that law enforcement has to re-enter the zone and, and re-establish, uh, uh, reestablish their authority by force?
0: Well, we'll keep watching things very closely, Chris, and uh, really appreciate your, your work for City Journal on this uh, evolving situation. But don't forget to check out Christopher Rufo's work on the City Journal website. That's www.city-journal.org. His latest piece is called The State of Chaz. It came out this past Monday. We'll link to his author page in the description, and you can follow him on Twitter at Rufo. You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at CityJournal underscore M-I. And always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a good rating on iTunes. Uh, Thanks for listening, and thanks very much, Chris, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.